This morning's reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 5 through 16. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Thank you, Julie. Good morning. As Daniel said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It is my honor and privilege to share with you from God's Word. We're going to be continuing in our series in 1 Samuel, uh, the life of David. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive in. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would speak to us this morning that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to hear from you, that we might encounter you, the living God, and that we would be transformed, that none of us would be the same after we've encountered you. Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. This past week in our staff meeting, we began to prepare for this season of Lent and Easter, and I was reminded of something that was shared with me last year. Uh, this past year, on Easter Sunday, uh, the Summit Church, uh, a church that has multiple campuses across the triangle, uh, had close to 13,000 people uh, attend their various campuses. And not only that, but amongst their seven or so campuses, they reported 215 baptisms. How incredible is that, right? A truly remarkable work of the Spirit. But can I be vulnerable with you for a moment? I remember when I first heard this report, when someone shared with me the news of this 
amazing outpouring of the Spirit. And you know what my initial reaction was? One of criticism and doubt. My mind was flooded with slanderous explanations for how this could have happened and why it was somehow harmful for the kingdom. It was as if someone had made up a little song, much like the one in our text. Christ Central has loved some people, and the summit has loved lots of people. <laughs> and to be honest, I just didn't like the way that song sounded. But can we, can we be honest? That is sick, isn't it? That really is sick. How utterly unchristian it is for a follower of Christ, much less a pastor, to not rejoice over the baptisms of 215 people. How perverted and twisted it is to run to critique rather than to throw a party. What is wrong with me? Now that is a rhetorical question. <laughs> no need to email me with your well thought out answers to that, please because I know the answer. There's a sickness inside of me, a disease, one that Saul had contracted as well, and it's the disease of jealousy. And brothers and sisters, if this disease is not treated, it's terminal. It will kill you. And so this morning, I'd like for us to study this disease, the disease of jealousy, and most importantly, seek to discern what causes it. How does one get infected, if you will? Our text this morning offers great insight into this disease by highlighting first one person who is infected by the disease and then one person who appears to be immune. And as we examine the lives of both, my hope is that we can in turn build up our immunity to this deadly disease. Amen? So I want to begin this morning first by looking at the life of Saul, who was clearly infected by the disease of jealousy. So look with me now at the text. Our story begins in verse 5 on such a positive note. As we saw last week, David has just become a hero. He's conquered the great Philistine, Goliath. And in response to his victory, verse 5, Saul has made him the commander of his army. David has risen to power. And what verse 5 indicates is that David is on fire right now. This position is suiting him quite well. He's killing it like Steph Curry behind the ark. He is on fire. And his military successes are stacking up in epic proportion. And one would think that this vast military success would be a reason for the whole nation to celebrate, right? Especially the king. And I think that would have happened, but for this billboard chart topper that all the kids were playing on their iPods that King Saul happened to hear on his morning commute. And one could imagine that it was probably quite the catchy tune, that one of those songs you just can't get out of your head. I'm not going to sing it for you, but, but it goes like this. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. It's such a short little jingle with such monumental ramifications. And hear me on this. There was nothing wrong with the song in itself. 
The song simply served to exacerbate the illness that was already inside of Saul. And brothers and sisters, that is the real danger of jealousy. It works underground. It's a covert op that targets the human heart. And after it takes root, it lies dormant inside of you. And it waits for just the right moment to attach itself to the good fortune of others and then wreak havoc. That's how jealousy works. I wonder if any of you can relate to what Saul is experiencing here. I mean, how ridiculous, right, that a king would not rejoice over military victories from his greatest general, his top general. And yet, at the same time, a pastor like me struggles to celebrate the baptisms of over 200 people at a church down the street. How ridiculous, right? What about you? Your co-worker gets a promotion, and for some reason, all you can think about is how underpaid you are. Or someone else's child makes the honor roll, and you don't want to congratulate them. What consumes your thoughts is actually discouragement about your own child's academic performance. Or you hear the announcement of a birth of a child, and instead of producing joy inside of you, it feels like salt in the wound of your own struggles with infertility. Or your best friend makes the varsity sports team, and instead of celebrating this significant moment in your life, you wallow in depression over how you never can catch a break. Or you're asked to be the maid of honor, the best man in a good friend's wedding, and yet you can't get away from the bitterness you feel about your own singleness. The parallels are endless, but I think you get the point. Church, what's going on here? What is it inside of Saul, inside of us, that prevents us from celebrating and rejoicing over the good fortune in the lives of others? I think the, the answer is that there's something fundamentally broken in each one of us. Hear me on this. Each of us, I believe, is some level embracing the lie that our self-worth is measured comparatively. Did you hear that? That my value and worth is not determined simply by my own merit, but is in fact contingent upon my ability to be better than someone else, to be better than you. Francis Bacon talks about how this disease works, says, It is ever joined to the comparing of man's self. It believes it's always me versus you, my good versus your good, never both at the same time. And brothers and sisters, if this disease is not dealt with, it often morphs into its far more dangerous cousin, which is envy. And envy, contrary to jealousy, doesn't just want to have what the other one has. It doesn't just want to emulate or copy someone else. Instead, the envious person desires the various thing that the other one has. He doesn't want just one also. He wants that one, the one that you've got. And this person wants it so bad that they would rather nobody have it at all if they can't have it. You see, envy is way worse than jealousy. It seeks to destroy rather than emulate. And brothers and sisters, that is how destructive this disease can be. And it's exactly what we see here in our text. Saul cannot stand the idea that his nation's success would be shared with anyone else. And so he resolves to destroy the greatest military leader Israel has ever had. Saul determines if I can't have success all for myself, then nobody can have it. 
but why? What is it that cultivates this way of thinking? How do we get so sick that we can no longer enjoy when good things happen to those around us? Or even worse, that we long for the demise of those who outperform us. Now on the surface, it would appear that the problem is that we're all just too vain. We're so vain. That we so desperately long for the approval of others and we want it so bad that if we can't have it, we'd rather no one else have it. But brothers and sisters, I think it's deeper than that. I think this longing for approval is actually emblematic of an even deeper and more significant problem. And and this is what I really want you to hear this morning. I think that problem is that each and every one of us, more than anything in the world, longs to look in the mirror and truly believe that I matter. You get that? We desperately long to have that worth and value and significance. And the applause from those around us simply serves to quench that thirst just for a moment though, right? The approval of man has an expiration date. It actually only works for a little while and then quickly fades and then we're constantly chasing after more and more approval. Brothers and sisters, that's the story of Saul's life. From the time that he first comes on the scene, he is constantly wrestling with this question of, do I matter? Do I really matter? Let me remind you a little of his story. We first meet him in chapter 9. And here Saul's father has sent him out to find some missing goats. You know, he's living the dream, goat hunting. And Saul stumbles upon this prophet named Samuel. And the prophet Samuel informs Saul that God has chosen him to be the first king of Israel. And how does Saul respond? 1 Samuel chapter 9, he says, Wait a minute, Samuel. Don't you know I'm a Benjaminite? I'm from the least of the tribes of Israel. That's like saying I'm an Auburn grad from the least of the tribes of the SEC. You know, and, and so Saul continues, not only that, Samuel, but my clan is the humblest of all the clans in this tribe. We're the poorest family on the block. Samuel, there must be some mistake. You've got the wrong guy. But there was, in fact, no mistake. God had chosen Saul. And God had confirmed and solidified his choice by having his prophet Samuel anoint Saul for this calling. That anointing will be incredibly important in a moment. I want you to hold that thought. Fast forward a few chapters to Saul's inauguration ceremony, a beautiful day of celebration. He's about to become Israel's first king. And in chapter 10, they're about to start the ceremony and Saul is nowhere to be found. He's missing. And the text says, I'm not making this up, God's people had to ask God, where might Saul be? Where did he go? And God says, quote, behold, Saul has hidden himself among the baggage. Don't let anyone tell you the Bible isn't funny. Can can you imagine a few weeks ago at the presidential inauguration, where this is just for fun, this has nothing to do with our sermon, but if, if if we're about to get started and Donald Trump was nowhere to be found, And then someone finds him and he's hiding in the luggage closet. Can you imagine how that would have boosted our confidence about our next president? But this is what happened. Saul is hiding amongst the luggage. And the reason is, is that we see again evidence that every time Saul looked in the mirror, he saw a person that did not matter. I don't matter. I don't have value. 
Brothers and sisters, your jealousy that may have even evolved into envy is rooted in that very same lie, that you don't matter. And the more you believe this lie, the more you will become utterly incapable of loving others and celebrating when good things happen in their life. Because the good in others will always be a threat to your own significance and worth. This is how Rebecca DeYoung says it. It's not just that the other person is better. It is that by comparison, their superiority makes you feel your own lack, your own inferiority more acutely. It highlights your lack of self-worth. And that's the tragic story of Saul's life. He's so unconvinced of his own worth and value and therefore plagued with jealousy that ultimately results in his demise. We're going to get there in a few weeks. But before we move on to David, I want you to take a moment now and look inside of you, inside of yourself. And I want you to ask a question. I don't think the question you need to ask is whether or not you have the disease of jealousy. But instead, how much of this disease has consumed you? Where are the places that this destruction is apparent? And then from that more detailed diagnosis of your own heart, we can then begin to treat this disease. And so now I want to move on to David, the commander of the king's army and the object of his jealousy. The first thing I want to highlight is the similarities between Saul and David's rise to power. Both of them lowly shepherd boys, both of them from dirt poor families, and both of them anointed by Samuel to be king. However, in spite of almost identical circumstances, the way they respond is vastly different. You see, David, in the midst of this classic rags-to-riches story, somehow avoids contracting this disease of jealousy. But how? Brothers and sisters, I think the answer lies primarily in David's understanding of his anointing. Not merely an intellectual understanding, but an existential, experiential understanding that in turn profoundly shaped his whole life. Let me show you this in in the text. If you remember, Samuel anointed David in chapter 16, and the text says, verse 13, that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And then shortly after, in chapter 17, Goliath comes on the scene, and as Daniel mentioned last week, David's confidence going into this battle is so telling. I'm going to read this again, verse 37. David says, The Lord, he's speaking to Goliath, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. See, David is profoundly aware, existentially aware of the Lord's anointing on his life. To use the repeated phrase from our text this morning, David knows deep in his soul that the Lord is with him. Don't miss the connection here. It is the very awareness that cultivates an immunity to jealousy. Because when the Lord is declaring this anointing to David. He is declaring to David, you are mine and you matter. You matter to me. And what's amazing is that God gave that exact same anointing to Saul, but he never fully believed it. He doubted its merit and instead continued to look 
to the approval of man for his worth and value. What in the world does this have to do with you and me? As best as I can tell, none of us have been anointed by the Lord's prophet. Or have we? Martin Luther, one of the key figures in the Protestant Reformation, 16th century, in his early ministerial career, he boarded himself up in a castle in order to translate the Greek Bible into German so that for the first time, ordinary people like you and I could read the Word of God for themselves. Beautiful thing. And while doing this, it's reported that he struggled mightily with doubt and discouragement. Uh, He believed this to be attacks of the devil. And what people said is that in the midst of these attacks, you could hear him shouting throughout the castle, I am baptized. He would declare to whatever this assault that was coming at him, I am baptized. Brothers and sisters, to those of you who have been baptized, you have been anointed. And I believe much of your hope for conquering this disease of jealousy is to, like, un, like David, understand and walk in your anointing. I want to read for you the explanation of baptism from our confession. This is Westminster Larger Catechism, question 165. Bear with me. The question 165, what is baptism? It says, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein Christ hath ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal of engrafting into himself, of remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit, of adoption and resurrection under everlasting life, and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. There's obviously a lot there that we could unpack, but I just want to highlight a few things. Brothers and sisters, your baptism is a, is a sign and seal of your engrafting into Jesus, your adoption as his son or daughter, a declaration that you are wholly the Lord's. Your baptism is God's audacious declaration that you are mine and you matter. You matter to me. And yet the reality is that Saul so often struggled to believe this and to walk in this reality, which is why, brothers and sisters, this is why the Lord instituted not one but two sacraments. We have two sacraments that Jesus has given us. In baptism we're anointed, but at the Lord's Supper, which we have right here, which we will celebrate in a few moments, we're reminded each week of the implications of that anointing because we forget. We forget over and over again. It's here at the table that the Lord seeks to drive these truths, the truths of our baptism, into our hearts. It's here that we hear the Lord remind us every week, I broke my body for you. I shed my blood for you. What's the message there? It's that message that we so desperately want to hear. It's that you are mine and you matter. Amen? I have a confession to make. I'm not a very good dancer. I know that may be hard to believe, um, but it's true. Unlike Pastor Daniel and, and Rachel, who can flat out cut a rug, it's, it's quite a show. It's really good. They're talented. I'm not so talented. There's nothing in my dancing that would make Mary Murphy from, you see, so you think I can 
dance, scream, or at least scream in a good way. But I kind of like to dance. However, in my single life, I found myself very reluctant to ever put my moves on display. In front of the mirror, in my bathroom, maybe, but not in public. Too much shame. But something happened. I got married. And amazingly, in marriage, I have found myself progressively more and more willing to show off my dance skills. Why? Unfortunately, it's not because my wife is some sort of phenomenal dance coach and now I'm some sort of dance phenom. It's actually because of the security that I'm ever increasingly feeling in my marriage. You see, ever since my wedding day, I have developed an ever-increasing awareness of the fact that my wife accepts me for who I am, in spite of my performance. And I'm more and more convinced each day that she ain't going anywhere. And I, I certainly tasted this profoundly on my wedding day, but I've also grown in this awareness over and over over the past eight years. And it's because of that acceptance, because of my belief that in Stacy's eyes, I belong to her and I matter, that I feel more freedom to shake my tail feather in public. Because <laughs> I don't care what you think about my dancing and my baby likes it. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> Brothers and sisters, do you see the sacramental parallels? Baptism is your wedding day. It's the day when God publicly declares His love and His favor towards you, His anointing, His promise to be with you. And that day should rock your world. Every time you witness someone be baptized on this stage, whether it's an infant or an adult, it should stir up immeasurable gratitude in you because our God is awesome and He loves you and you matter. At the same time, the table is the place where our continued growing and understanding of this acceptance and love happens. It's where it's cultivated. And the good news is that we get to spend our whole life coming here each week with the hopes that we will progressively come to know and believe more deeply God's love and acceptance of us till the day that we die. And as a result, my hope is that you will feel the freedom to dance. And what does dancing look like, brothers and sisters, in light of this text? Dancing is that we will be so secure and aware of our approval in the Lord, that He is pleased with us, that we won't need to chase after the approval of others. That we will be convinced in Him that we matter. And then we'll be set free to love others and truly delight in the good in their lives, knowing that this is not some zero-sum game where there's only one winner, but rather coming to delight in God's economy where we're all losers. Amen? We're all losers, and we have all graciously been made winners in Christ. Saul never really believed his anointing, and as a result, he was forever searching for love and significance outside of the Father's embrace. Christ Central Church, when you look in the mirror, do you believe? Do you really believe that you matter? Not because of how great you are, but because the greatest one of all has given up everything so that you might be his. I hope and pray that truth becomes more and more real in your life each and every day. And as a result, you learn how to dance. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I confess that this disease has grabbed hold of me. 
I so often measure my worth comparatively that I've got to be better than, that I've got to outperform. And God, that goes so contrary to what you have said to me in my baptism, that I'm yours and that I matter. God, I'm so thankful for the table because I forget, and each week you come and you remind me as I taste and see that you are good. Father, I pray that we as a church would cultivate a deeper understanding of your love and acceptance of us, and that would set us free to love people really well, to not have to be better than, but to delight in the good things that happen in the lives of those around us and really pursue the greater good in this city. God, we lift these things up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.